Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Please consider supporting Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. They are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. Hey, this is Adam from Toronto, and I support Creative Control because Vish is full stop one of the best arts interviewers in Canada, or anywhere in the world, really. He approaches every episode like he's known the artist for years, creating a conversational atmosphere that gets straight to the heart of the work. No one else in podcasting gets it quite right like he does, with a mixture of meticulous research, wise artistic insights, and well-humored personal connections. I proudly support Vish and Creative Control on Patreon. You should, too. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. Allison Russell is a multi-talented musician, storyteller, poet, and writer currently based in Nashville, Tennessee. Originally from Montreal, Quebec, Russell fled child and sexual abuse in her home by moving to Vancouver, British Columbia, and eventually taking solace in artistic expressions like music. Over the past 20 years, Russell has been a key member in bands like Poe Girl, Birds of Chicago, and Our Native Daughters, all of whom toured hard and gained loyal followings for their acclaimed records and live performances. On May 21st, 2021, Russell's first solo album was released by Fantasy Records. It's called Outside Child, and to say it's been a breakthrough record feels like an understatement. On top of making many critics and fans best of the year lists, the album led Russell to perform at the Grand Old Opry for the first time, to perform on late-night talk shows like Jimmy Kimmel Live and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and it was nominated for three Grammy Awards, which will be awarded on April 3rd, 2022. Having crossed paths over the years in Guelph at the Hillside Festival, Allison and I connected recently for our first-ever in-depth conversation where we discussed her family history and her resolve to be a proud survivor of abuse, how Montreal protected her, 
Our collective reckoning with white supremacy and the tyranny of violence towards women, the inspiring work and music of Brandy Carlisle, Allison's current work on a memoir, how her experiences informed the wondrous songs on Outside Child and what the Grammys mean to her, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control with additional support from Blackbird Music, which is a well-stocked record store with locations in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta, and a friendly staff who will help you with all of your music buying needs. You can learn more about them at blackbird.ca. Plus, in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee, respectively, in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 668 of Creative Control, featuring the inspiring and talented Allison Russell with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Nothing from the earth, nothing from the sea, not a God Almighty thing. I'm a midnight ride, stone bone of fire, not a fly. I'm an angel of the morning, too. The promise that the dawn will bring you, you, you. Hi, Allison. How are you? Hello. I'm doing very well, Vish. How are you? <laughs> I'm well. Nice to see you again. I don't know if you know this, but uh, we have had encounters at the Hillside Festival when I lived in Guelph. I remember. This- I do. I remember you well. Oh, good. Did I have that? I must have introduced your band, Birds of Chicago, at some yeah, point, right? you did. And okay. I think you actually might have introduced Poe Girl as well. And I have a distinct memory of standing with you and listening to the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir and Kate Fenner singing and both of us being like, this is so wonderful. We get to (laughs) hear Kate Fenner again. So I have a really distinct memory of that. Oh, that's lovely. You know, I was putting that out there and I didn't know I was going to come back. You could have said... (laughs) Yeah, and I'm sorry, pal. I don't remember you at all. No, but no, of that's I lovely. You. Of course, <laughs> it's nice. I you. Well, it's very nice to connect again, and uh, under very uh, wonderful circumstances. And we're going to talk about the year you've been having already in a yeah. moment. But uh, as I always do, first of all, where in the world are you today? So today I am in Los Angeles, California. I'm at a hotel called the Sunset Marquee, and I'm here. Uh, working on my book and also doing some co-writing sessions and some promo stuff uh, okay. and meeting with meeting with uh, my music publisher, Concord Music Publishing here as well. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, so that's where I am today. Business trip. But where, now I know you as being uh, uh, from Montreal, but where are you living these days? Yeah, so for the last five years, I am one of the many members of the Canadian invasion taking over Nashville. <laughs> so <laughs> I am, I, we've been, my partner JT Nero and our daughter Ida and I have been living um, in Nashville for the last almost, almost five years now. Um, okay. But we go back and forth a lot. You know, I've, I actually have um, a lot of family in Vancouver, BC, and a mm-hmm. lot of family in th- sort of throughout the prairies, but also in, I just recently connected with my biological father and that side of my family, and they are just outside of Toronto in Brampton. So oh. I go, I come to Ontario a lot as well when it's not 
the pandemic. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. That's yeah. I'm, I'm, has it been a happy uh, reconnection there? Very, very much. Yeah, okay, it's been, good. and and we I didn't you know we didn't I didn't know him at all growing up, and so it's been, and I didn't have the the best of luck with my adoptive father. So I'm very. Uh, grateful to be connected now with my biological father. And I have two siblings on that side as well and a wonderful stepmother. So that's been very joyful. Oh, that's lovely. And congratulations. I I guess unhappily or happily, we will delve into some of your family history in just a moment. I say happily because I feel like you've been able to transcend the pain and we will get into that on some level. I'm speculating, of course, but uh, you mentioned the invasion, the Canadian invasion of Nashville. <laughs> yeah. I, I missed the call for that invasion, I guess. So uh, what prompted you? Oh, it's you? never too late. <laughs> it's, never, it's never too late. <laughs> You're welcome anytime. <laughs> I've been to Nashville. Um, I like Nashville. Uh, what, what prompted your own thought of going to Nashville in particular to work on music and whatnot? Well, you know, I'm really excited about the sort of creative expansion and inclusion and diversity of the kind of greater um, all Americana scene. And um, and when I talk about Americana, I'm talking about all of the musical sort of roots, foundational influences of modern music. And that encompasses, you know, from the Caribbean up through South America, Central America, Mexico, the U.S., Canada, like I, I mean all of it. And I've just been really galvanized and embraced by that community. We ha- birds were, and uh, Poe Girl was in the early days, and um, we just were drawn more and more to Nashville for work. And you know, not on Music Row. We're very much uh, outside of the mainstream, you know, country world. But there's so much more going on in Nashville than that. Yeah. And we just had this wonderful community of friends there, folks like Abigail Washburn and Bela Fleck and Ruth Moody and uh, Jamie Dick, who plays drums on my record, and his wife, Ali Sperry, who's a beautiful writer, Rhiannon Giddens, um, was was living there at the time. She's now in Ireland. Mm -hmm. But she actually, part of the reason we ended up moving there was she, while she was on that Nashville show, bought a house and we were roommates for a while that when we first moved there and our children are, you know, they're, they call themselves, you know, tour siblings. So oh, nice. they've, they've kind of grown up on the road together. And so it was just a really a strong sense of community. My chosen sister Yola has wound up there. My other chosen sister, Amethyst Kia, who's also in Our Native Daughters with Rhiannon Giddens and Layla McCalla and I is in and out. She's in Johnson City, Tennessee, but she comes to Nashville all the time. And, you know, we're, it just felt like a great community. And also, I, as a working musician mom, I wanted to be in a community that was understanding about artist families. And, you know, every, it was all the things you didn't have to say and all the things you don't have to explain to the school. And just that nobody is constantly saying, when are you going to get a real job there? People understand that songwriting and creative work and being an artist is a real job. You know? Absolutely. And I, so I think we got a little bit weary. We had been kind of going, we had been in the greater sort of Chicago area when our daughter was born and we were on the road, you know, we were just on the road like 250, 300 days of the year. And we realized as Ida was, 
we moved there when she was about about to be four years old. And we were thinking about school. We were thinking about how can we keep doing our creative work, but also make sure that we're centering our daughter's needs. Yeah. You know. So Nashville made sense on that level. Um, mm-hmm. I know you had a, a tremendously traumatic and difficult time coming up in Montreal. Uh, I know you fled, yeah. ostensibly fled to Vancouver at some point. Did you find that you could galvanize uh, or rather be part of a galvanized musical community in either of those cities? Again, I know personally it must have been very difficult for you to even ponder such things, but were you? did you feel like connected to musical communities in those cities? Very much. I mean, I credit so much of my debut solo album, Outside Child, is really a love song to Montreal and a, a song of gratitude to Montreal because the art at the heart of that city sustained me and and helped me survive you know it was a lifeline and it was everything from being able to hear Oscar Peterson play for free at the Jazz Fest when I was a kid um, you know to when I moved into my first apartment with some women that I went to high school with you know we were all between the ages of sort of 15 and 17 we lived down the road a few houses down from Lhasa de Sela and I remember hearing her on her porch you know playing music and I just feel like that between Carabana and the Montreal Jazz Fest and my grandma taught at McGill, so I would go all the time and just hide out and listen to the conservatory students practicing. And I I was surrounded by art. I was sustained by art in our city, all of our wonderful public libraries. I mean, I, I spent just hours and hours and hours of my childhood in, you know, running around Westmount Park and at the Westmount Public Library after school because I went to Roslyn, which is in that neighborhood, um, for my primary school. And that, I just have so many memories. Free Shakespeare in the park, the Repercussion Theater would do these incredible productions where you would follow the scenes, you would, the the audience would travel to different locations in the park and they would stage different scenes. I have such a strong memory of, of experiencing Midsummer Night's Dream for the first time that way. I mean, I was just nourished by that city. And when I ran away at 15, I was relatively safe because there were 24 hour cafes. I would go play chess all night in these cafes. I would sleep in the graveyard and no one ever bothered me there. I would, you know, I just, I'm grateful to that city. And and that's definitely where my artist awakening began. But it wasn't until I moved to Vancouver when I was 17, um, about to be 18, that I really got immersed in a musical scene. And that was by the grace of my maternal aunt, Janet Lillian Russell, who is a brilliant songwriter and singer. And she really welcomed me into her kind of folky circle. And I, you know, everyone was... 30 to 40 years older than me, but in, in her circle, but they, well, they just welcomed me so generously and encouraged my early songwriting. And I connected with, you know, eventually connected with Trish Klein and we started Poe Girl together. And, you know, the Big Tanya's were, were so inspirational to me mm-hmm. as I remember when, you know, Trish and, and Frazee and Sam are all a few years older than I am. So I really looked up to them and it was exciting to, see them making it happen, going on their first tour and, you know, being being kind of um, embraced by the, at the time, I guess, what was called the alt-country community, what we would now call, you know, part of the greater Americana community. But yeah, yeah. so definitely I felt very much a part of the kind of folk revival, 
all Americana community forming um, in Vancouver. And that was that was really where I cut my teeth as an artist and stepped into my calling as a writer and a songwriter. And I realized I was, I'll never forget the being invited to play our first Vancouver Folk Music Festival in 2003. And Pogra was just, you know, brand new baby band. Yeah. Um, and it was Doug Simpson who was programming at the time at Vancouver. And he put us on a stage with Odetta and Ani DeFranco and Utah Phillips and Martin Joseph. And I was like, I just want to do this for the rest of my life. I never want <laughs> wow. to do anything else. That's lovely. So, it's very yeah. lovely. And I appreciate that you've cited some musical influences and inspirations. And, uh, uh, you know, these things are uh, come about by way of luck, talent, happenstance. And it sounds like you had that. Uh, the opening song on Outside Child is Montreal. And it's it was interesting to hear you talk about uh, how you felt like you owed that city some debt of gratitude. Because as you, de- as, as one delves into the songs on this record, you seem to be singing a lot about protectors. Uh, Montreal as a city protected you. Uh, yeah. Characters like Persephone protected you. Can you, and this is where I guess it'll get difficult potentially, but can you talk, uh, and, ex- and I know you've done this probably a lot with this record release. Can you please, in your own words, and as much as you want to divulge, talk about what you needed protection from and where you're at with that now? Having exercised so much with these beautiful songs, I imagine this has been helpful and therapeutic and all those sorts of things. But I, before we get to that, can we talk about what it is you're singing about, what you're addressing and what people needed, what people and cities needed to protect you from? Yeah. Well, I was, um, you know, I was a child who was severely sexually and physically and psychologically abused. Um, my primary abuser was my mother's husband, who was first my stepfather and then eventually adopted me. So he is actually legally my adoptive father to this day. Um, he was an American expat who came up to Montreal um, in the 70s and he brought a lot of um, dysfunction with him. He was born and raised, he was born in 1936 in a sundown town in Indiana. And for those of you listening who don't know what a sundown town is, they were towns and counties in the United States where it was illegal for a person of color or a black person specifically to spend the night in the town. That was the, the level of of intense uh, white supremacy and bigotry and racism was such that a person of color couldn't spend the night. And if you did, it was legally allowable to lynch Mm. that person. Um, So that's, you know, he came from, I believe that that kind of indoctrination um, into violent ideologies, white supremacist ideologies like that, I believe that is a form of child abuse. And he was subjected to that by his country and his town. Um, you know, he grew up believing that black folks were three-fifths human, really believing that. And that was enshrined in the Constitution of the United States for a very, very long time. And he grew up in a town that believed black people were less than human. And he was raised by a mother who was severely abusive to him. So when he came to Montreal, he brought all of that with him. And he met my mother and I when 
I think I was not quite two years old yet. And my mom was very young. She was a, a child herself when she had me, um, 17, 18 years old. And she was struggling with mental undiagnosed schizophrenia. She wasn't diagnosed for until many years later. Um, and she was unfortunately at the time, you know, in Montreal, I'm born, I was born in 1979. And so at this point it's 81. And the trend in um, social services at that time was to just remove children and place them in foster care. And, you know, she wasn't given any therapy. She wasn't given any guidance or counseling or treatment or anything. You know, I was just taken from her and she felt already shamed as, you know, an unwed mother, as a white mother with a black child. That was the stigma of that was very intense in mm. Quebec of the early 80s. Um, you know, the the segregation in that city is intense and real to this day. Yeah. And she really, I, I really think about from my mom, having me was like having the kind of veil of white privilege ripped away of suddenly, you know, sort of falling from grace, so to speak. And there was stigma applied to her that she'd never experienced before. Never experienced yeah. before in her life. Mm-mm. Right. And, 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 and a kind of a, you know, there was, there was an assumption around just being black in Montreal when I was born that there would be social instability, that there would be poverty, that there would be, you know, that I wouldn't do well in school, that I w- there, were these, there were these assumptions around my identity that played into how things went as well, I think. And so when he was, you know, when this, my primary abuser, my adoptive father, when he was courting my mother, I was in foster care and and I had been removed by child protective services and so he you know he was the one that eventually paid for the lawyer got me back and they you know child protective services ironically just handed me over to this man who you know proceeded to severely abuse and and torture me for the next decade you know um so that I mean, was that was yeah. that those were my childhood circumstances but the record really isn't about abuse. The record is actually about the journey out of abuse. The record is actually about breaking that cycle of abuse and trauma and violence. And it, and as you very intuitively and astutely understood, it's about the chosen family or the protectors that I found. Yeah. Who, who And it's about art. You know, it's about yeah. how art for me and music for me and writing for me has been a lifeline has been had saved my life um and that's not hyperbolic you know persephone no. my first love saved my life that's yeah. not hyperbolic it's just true yeah. the community that i found and the the kind of ability to transform and transmogrify trauma through art has been life saving for me and life giving and i'm hooked on it to this day you know well First of all, I mean, what can I say? I feel horribly that you uh, went through this. I feel heartened that you've found a way to transcend it. And 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 what I was also like the the stuff that you're just discussing comes through on the record. I appreciate your compliment towards me about being astute, but I think it's pretty clear. Like the kudos should go to you. You've taken these life circumstances and 
articulated them in a way that's artful, but I get it. There's definitely undercurrents and overcurrents and things like that, but it's a beautiful mix of conveying these feelings. So first of all, let me shoot it back at you. Congratulations on that, (laughs) and you should be commended. But what I was really struck by as you were talking about this situation that you were in and the people involved, your mother, your adoptive father, your abuser, you have so much empathy talking about where they are coming from. That's remarkable to me that you... Did you say he was born in 1936? Like, if that's true, like, by my math... And by your birth date and what you said about your mother, there's like a 26-year age difference? Yeah, exactly. Almost 27 years Yeah, that's them. remarkable. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even yeah. understand that dynamic, but your mother sounded like she was in dire straits yeah. and needed some, yeah. some... Well, I feel like she's a sibling almost. You know, I've always felt that about her because we're so close in age. Oh, right. You know, she was so young when she had me. And especially now as a mother, and I had my daughter when I was 33 going on 34 with you know, a very loving partner who is the best dad and co-parent. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can't imagine how alone and terrified she must have been, you know, and it's, it's as I've gotten older, I've understood, I've, you know, my empathy for her has grown. My compassion for her has grown, right. you know, as I've lived more and as I understand just how terribly alone and unsupported she was. Right. So know, she, as, it may have been that she was looking to him almost as a father figure. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And still, you know, she still lives with him. Oh, he's still, 1936, he's still, wow. He's still alive. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's still alive. I charged him actually when I was 20. It took me till I was 20 years old to In the year 2010, I believe? him. Yeah. And, yeah. and how did... Um, no, oh, sorry. No, in the year uh, 2001. Oh, one, sorry. I yeah, got yeah, in the year vaguely, 2001. I got yeah. vaguely dyslexic Thank there. Thank you. I'm sorry. That's very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old. <Yeah. laughs> no, sorry. I got confused. I love that you thought I was 20 and 20. No, we're about, we're about the same age. Sorry. I, I, did, I did that math yeah, wrong. I'm 42. I'm I was, 42. I was calling upon... It's not in front of me, but I was calling upon what I'd read, and I just inverted the numbers. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah. But anyway, you charged him, and what was the result of that? What happened? So he went to he went to prison for three years. He got a three. He ended up pleading guilty in the end, oh. and he did that because there were other women who came forward that he had abused. So how do um, you? And again, I want to call back to this. I appreciate you having empathy for your mother, and also yeah. the fact that she was later diagnosed with schizophrenia. Like, but this is going to be a lot for some people to uh, comprehend. Uh, we seem to be in that place now where when someone says or does something that if it's not outright abusive, it's just the example that keeps coming up on my show is Kanye West. Here's someone mm-hmm. that some of us used to love, but it's very difficult because of how he's behaving. And yet we know he's had trauma. He's going through mental health issues. So then we yeah. there are people who are like, yeah, I get that. I get the Trump stuff. I get it. But he's my guy. And he's going through shit and I need to be there for him. He's just always yeah. been my guy. So I get, I, the more conversations I have like this, uh, I, I, I'm getting the sense that people have this notion in them that you have to think of someone's circumstances before you cast judgment. This is a situation, Allison, where you're a firsthand victim. It's easy to kind of talk about the abstract with, with some of these cases, but how do you do that? I, I say that with all, Frankness, like how do you have that within you to have empathy for this person? I mean, you charged him, so mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a a limit to how much empathy you had. But how do you do that? How do you look at his I circumstances? Think that charging him was empathetic, 
right. because it stopped him from harming more children, specifically my niece. I mean, the reason I charged him. So I will two things. I don't think of my, I don't speak of myself as a victim any longer. If I ever did, I really lean into that. I am a survivor. And in fact, that is our part of our human birthright yeah. is survival and resilience. That is part of our human birthright. And I think that when we have so much shame and silence around these kinds of circumstances, that compounds the harm and it enables it, it enables this the same endless looping, repeating intergenerational cycle of trauma and violence and abuse to to perpetuate. It flourishes. These cycles of trauma and violence and abuse flourish with our silence. And I say this, I would never, ever, ever judge or fault any survivor who did not ever want to talk about it. I, I have deep empathy for that. I understand that. I would never shame another survivor for what they ever do or don't want to say, yeah. you know, yeah. but, but who I am as a writer and a musician and a performer and a, and a compulsive, uh, writer is I need to, I need to write it out and I need to sing it out and I need to talk it out. And so, because I can, I do, because I know there are a lot of us who can't. And here's the truth. It's one in three women it's one in four men. It's one in two trans or non-binary or gender diverse folks yeah. who have been, who, who report, who have reported being abused in some way, yeah. you know, sexually assaulted in some way. That's, so we know that that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Because how many people never report it? Yeah. So it's a pandemic. It's an ancient pandemic so pervasive and extreme that we didn't almost even see it for so long. And it's yeah. really only since the advent and as much as I, you know, I worry, I worry so much about like my daughter, all our kids, all the kids growing up in social media experiment land. Right. Yeah. Cause I'm, we're just old enough that we had childhood without it. Right. And, mm. um, but we're all immersed in it now for all of the kind of, you know, the, the, the sort of terrifying human social experiment of it, mass global social experiment of it. One thing that has become clear to me is for movements like social justice movements, survivor movements, it has been an unprecedented connector, right? Where we, Tarana Burke and the work that she's done with the Me Too movement org, that is, it's unprecedented in our human history, actually. But it's also, it's it's interesting that you invoke human history because I think what we're getting to is the endemic and systemic nature of such abuse. I mean, yes. in the song, uh, on the, in the contextualization for the song Night Flyer, I believe you invoke your ancestors and suggesting, it's what you were saying earlier, like this is a cycle of surviving various yeah. kinds of abuse and trauma. And so yeah. I'm curious about what that, I can see how that would bolster you. Like people have gone through this. Other people have gone through this. My people yeah. have gone through this. Is that why you look to that just for that support mechanism to know that they transcended the same things you've gone through? I think yes, in a sense, but also it, it, this record, this solo work, 
you know, I've been, as you know, I've been a musician for a professional musician for almost 22 years. And I never in my entire life felt a desire to, in fact, I was terrified of the notion of putting myself forward under my own name as a solo artist. I've always been much happier uh, being, you know, one part of a whole and, and part of a collective effort, a creative communion. You know, that's what I'm really hooked on is creative communion with Mm -hmm. other artists and musicians that I resonate with. And, but what this grew out of really was when I um, was working on the songs of our native daughters record uh, with Rhiannon Giddens and Layla McKella and Amethyst Kia, you know, who are brilliant artists and my chosen sisters, we were delving into a lot of the history of the black diaspora, but from a black woman's perspective, from our perspectives and finding the kind of stories hidden between the lines of even a song like John Henry, you know, where we got a lot more interested in Pollyanne. She's the one who actually does his work when he's sick and she's the one who survives. And one would assume she's the one who keeps his tail alive and keeps their children alive Mm -hmm. and keeps the generations going, you know? So we, during the process of that record, I wrote a song for my paternal, many times great matriarch, um, Kashiba. And I learned about her because of, you know, meeting my, my Grenadian Canadian family, my black family. You know, I was raised by white supremacists. I was raised in, in an all white family where I, constantly had to explain and justify my existence you know I mean the question when I was growing up was like where you know where's your family that's your family why are you black basically right right and uh you know I had no and and because of my adoptive father's sort of really poisonous white supremacist indoctrination I had shame around my own blackness, you right, know, right. that I had to deprogram and I'm and will probably be deprogramming for the rest of my life if I'm truthful, you mm-hmm. know, and meeting my black family was incredibly healing. We met in 2009 for the first time. Um, I was 30 years old and this was, is in Brampton, in, Brampton, Ontario. Yeah. 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 We met. Well, technically we met at the, at the Toronto airport. Right. Um, they came and met me at the airport, July, 2009. I was between festivals with Pogrom, my whole band oh, nice. <laughs> was with me. This was in the Pogrom days. And um, yeah, and we met and actually it was right before Shelter Valley Folk Fest, which is no more. I missed that one. Oh, okay. So it was, or soon before, you know, I, see. I guess that okay. was September and I met them. I met them in July for the first time. We went to Grenada in August. Oh, wow. And then I came back to Ontario in September, and my whole family came to Shelter Valley. And I remember some of the musicians came back, and my my biological father threw this incredible feast. He you know, made this Grenadian feast with curry goat and roti and all this oh, wow. delicious, amazing stuff. And, yeah, I mean, they, I am so lucky in... Um, my paternal family and and have been welcomed in and you know for I, for Ida for my daughter that's just her family she's known them her whole life you know Ida did, did reconciling with your I don't know the circumstances as to why your father was out of your life for for that long yeah. uh, and I I can only assume you know you talk about the trauma and uh, the feelings of uh, 
feeling like you were doubting, you know, your blackness itself was giving you uh, moments of pause or cons- or whatever. I don't know how to put it, but but well, I was not shamed a- for it my whole life. Shamed for it my whole life, and that is that reflects what's happened to the diaspora and is ongoing. You yes. know, and this yeah. is what I mean. It was I connected when I wrote when I heard Kashiba's name. It, it was just like this instant. I I couldn't stop crying, and it was this feeling of connection, mm. and that I understood because what she went through my childhood paralleled. You know, except that luckily for me, what she went through in her day, it was legal what they did to her. Right? right. They kidnapped her and they enslaved her and they stole her children and they enslaved them. And that was legal then. Yeah. That yeah. was legal, right? Yeah. And what I was essentially enslaved by my adoptive father for a right. decade, right. but it wasn't legal. And I was able to escape. And I was able to find a path to freedom, you know, and she never got the chance to do that. But her strength and resilience sustained me through all of that and her ability to keep hope alive because you don't survive for that long if you can't keep hope alive. You just don't. You die. You die of despair. You kill yourself or you, you know, you she somehow was able to keep hope alive despite her much more severe circumstances that she had to endure. You know, so you've and, you've encountered figures in your life, whether they're your family or figures uh, in let's call it popular culture that have inspired you and bolstered you. But you also said something earlier about how you never imagined you'd be a solo artist. And before we get to that part of it, I wonder, and I'm sure it had in some way, uh, your experiences had in some in some small way at least informed your previous works. Absolutely. But is Outside Child the first time? You've truly addressed what you've gone through, or can you think of examples in your previous songwriting and artistry where you tried to delve into these feelings and, and address them? Oh, it's definitely not the first time. Uh, the yeah. first time I addressed it was on a Poe Girl record called Vagabond Lullabies. I wrote a song called Part Time Papa. Right. And that was the first time I addressed it. And then actually, in right before I met my family um, in 2009, I wrote, um, well, I wrote the song earlier, but in 2009, I recorded a song that I wrote called No Shame with Poe Girl that's very explicitly addressing my childhood abuse. And I specifically, did, we did a whole camp, we did a No Shame tour. I ran a marathon that same September. So this is all as I'm meeting my black family too. I raised money for Little Warriors, which is a wonderful organization working to end childhood sexual abuse and supporting survivors, um, and and also a, a, an organization in the U.S. called the National Children's Alliance. Right. And so I was very, but it was this was pre Me Too. This was pre survivors finding each other on Twitter. You know, right. right. It was very much alone and. That tour was one of the hardest things I've done. And we, I had all kinds of pushback from venues, venues mm. that didn't want us to come back, that were angered that I was talking about this, that were, I mean, it was the full gamut. And the other thing that happened that made me understand just the, the absolute ubiquitousness of this trauma uh, was at every show, there would be multiple people disclosing to me writing to me afterward 
And I, you know, it was my first time understanding how deep this goes and how far, how just insidious, ubiquitous, it's everywhere present. So many humans on the planet have been sexually abused and it's, it's, it's a pandemic, you know? Absolutely. And to your point, you, you mentioned pre me too. So basically from that moment on, there has been some more acceptance of what you're talking about. Does that strike you as part of the motivation for you to really talk about yourself over the course of a whole record in this biographical sense? Did you feel strengthened enough to do that? I mean, it grew out of that is definitely part of it. Yeah. Um, understanding just the extent of it. And I feel really strongly that nothing can change if we can't even talk about the problem to begin with right nothing can change we are doomed to just perpetuate this if we can't i mean it became more urgent for me after having my daughter and i actually went through my you know our daughter was born at the very end of 2013 um, new year's eve eve 2013 and i went through a period of lying fallow as a writer. I, at the time I thought of it as writer's block, but I have, I think a better understanding of what that actually was. I was needing to deeply process and becoming a mother for me was joyful, but it was also terrifying because of my childhood and and the, the very difficult relationship that I have with my own mother. And, Um, You know, I was really terrified to become a mother. And I also understood when she was born that I had to get braver and louder and more actively seek to reduce the harm of the world, you know, because I have to be able to look her in the eye and say, I did everything I could to make sure that you and your generation don't have to carry the same traumatic burdens that our generation did. It's true. Becoming yeah. a parent makes you an advocate for your child, but this sort of warrior for the planet, because yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, ultimately really their home. Does. Yeah. Yeah. So that it's their home and we're pushing it to, a, we're on a precipice Yes, as a species or past it. I the would planet argue. will go on. Yeah. The planet will go right. on, but we're pushing ourselves towards our own mass extinction. Yeah. And it is part, these things are connected the way that we uh, exploit humans is connected with our extractive exploitative process on the land it is no coincidence that in areas where the sort of mass short-sighted exploitative extraction is occurring those are also areas where women are going missing yes you know those are also areas those are the, the highest areas of assault and abuse of indigenous women and women of color you know, yeah, yeah, and and not just women. I should say, you know, trans, uh, all women, yeah, trans all, women included, yeah, yeah. and also men, and also non-binary folks, yeah, you know, and also gender diverse folks. Like it's, it's, these things are connected, you know, yeah. and we have to. I, I, if I have a guiding principle, I suppose it's harm reduction. I yeah. want to do whatever I can to reduce harm and to increase the chances of not just survival, but thriving and joyful connection. And I believe, I believe that the beloved community is possible. I believe that we are capable of seeing 
and respecting one another as fully equal human beings. I believe that we can do it as I a species. I hope you're right. I'm a bit more cynical, even as a father of two, and I it can't be that cynical because what the hell would I do every day? But yeah, I, I hope you're correct. I'm just not, you know, as we live through what we're living through right now, I'm just yeah. not seeing it as much as I'd like. Uh, I do yeah. see it. Like my when I say this to my wife, she's always like, well, look at this Humans of New York story or look at this. And I'm like, right, yeah. I know. Look at this person set a marathon record. I know. There's hope, but it's hard. Some don't you? Do you ever struggle with this? Yeah. I struggle. Every I struggle day. with it yeah. every day. Okay, I struggle with it every day, and every day I talk myself down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and say, okay, well, what can I do today to yeah. be part of creating a more sustainable, loving, compassionate, empathetic, cooperative community? Yeah. You know, because we cannot afford to be devaluing any minds right now or leaving any minds behind. We need to get incredibly creative. We need to think laterally and to creatively problem solve together like never before if we want to come out of our tailspin. Yeah, I feel like on a very, very, very minor and small scale, that's what I hope on some level I'm accomplishing with doing like having conversations like this one like just keeping the chatter up on that level yeah so you're talking about how uh, after the turning point of me too there was more resonance for these stories and this messaging and people were finally i i was talking to someone on the show a few weeks ago and her example was she had someone as a musician that was ostensibly a stalker and an abuser a former partner who became an abusive partner and then stalking just showing up at the shows and she she talked about the fact that in recent years, when she used to try to talk to the security at the show to be like, please don't let this person in, they just give her like screw face. Like, what are you talking about? Right. right. And now right. because of things like Me Too and more conversations like your, like the ones you're having, they listen. Yeah. They are hearing yeah. it. So I, hearing it. I don't mean to tie too fine a point on this, but as we're speaking, you've gone solo and you're resonating you yourself and your music is resonating arguably as much as or more would you agree more than it has it's unprecedented unprecedented i didn't want to put words yeah. in your mouth or no it, it's uh, definitely unprecedented in right my career it's it's i mean it's surreal <laughs> you know when the grammy nominations came down it was like i thought it was a joke when jt told me you yeah. know i did i didn't believe him i was in the middle of a podcast when he told me and so the, my reaction has been <laughs> captured for all captured. time there's, there's a lot of yelling and swearing <laughs> and, and laughing like, Back, this isn't real this can't be real if you can be objective about it what do you think i mean you made a fantastic record so that's but you've made fantastic records before i'm sure you've thought so others have thought mm-hmm. so for sure but on this level any perspective on why this is occurring right now I think you're right in that it's it's a conjunction of things always, right? People, there's timing, there's luck, there's all these layers. I think it's many layers. I think 2020 happened. And for the first time in my lifetime, there has been a sustained collective reckoning with white supremacy. And the ongoing violent, destructive force that it is in our, in you know, globally, but specifically in our in the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. And we 
particularly in Canada, have not wanted to face or acknowledge any of that. You know, we like our multicultural PR, but uh, the the reality is that the only place I've been assaulted by a police officer is Montreal, Quebec, Canada. The only place I've been spat on in the street is Montreal, Quebec, Canada during the referendum. The only place I've been refused bathroom service is Hannah, Alberta. Right. You know, we it's 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 in our and we are we are reckoning with it in the most awful way yet with finding more and more thousands of indigenous children consigned to unmarked graves in our country. Like we have to face white supremacist domestic terrorism in our country and in the U.S. And that was, you know, in 2020, it started with Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd. You know, I had been sort of quietly building a team around Outside Child. You know, I actually recorded Outside Child in 2019 between an Our Native Daughters tour and a, and a Birds of Chicago tour uh, in Nashville just after Americana Fest um, in October 2019. And I didn't really know what to do with it. You know, I, even as I was, and the reason I was able to record it was because of the Canada Council for the Arts. I got a grant, uh, a writing grant, sort of exploratory writing and demo grant from the Canada Council for the Arts that Kaya Cater's mom, Tamara Cater, encouraged me to apply for. And I got it, and it was exactly enough money to rent Sound Emporium in Nashville for four days and to pay everybody to come play. And we made Outside Child in those four days and a, a fifth extra day at um, pro- the producer Dan Nobler's home studio where Yola and Ruth Moody and the McCrary sisters and Aaron Ray came and we all sang together and did the harmonies. Yeah. And that was sort of the last thing that we did for the record. And I didn't know what to do with it, you know, because it was clearly a solo record and I did not know how to do that what to even do with it. And, and, and then I was just back on the road. And as with, you know, as we all had to March 11th, the lockdown came yeah. here and um, we were out birds of Chicago was out on the West coast. We were actually supposed to be heading up to Vancouver, um, with opening for the wood brothers and the lockdown happened. We all flew home and then, you know, the rest as we were, we're in it yeah. still, but that we, we, I was forced to stop for the first time in 20 years, you know. I have been a working class, hard touring, subsistence touring musician for, at, at that point, up to that point, 20 years, you know. And it, and it was a trap. It was a hamster wheel that I couldn't get off, you know. And, and we would always think, oh, this sort of the big break is coming and the big break never came. And we were surviving. We were making a living barely, but we were not thriving, yeah. you know, and it was getting to the point of, I was really questioning if it, if we could go on, you know, if it was sustainable as our daughter was getting older and I was, you know, and she no longer wanted to be on the road and she didn't want to be a homeschooled van baby. And, you know, she wanted to go to school with other kids. Yeah. And I was, you know, I actually went and got my yoga 
teacher training certificate thinking I was going to have to just quit music and hmm. stay home with Ida and, you know, JT could keep touring and I would teach yoga and take my kid to school. You know, I yeah. was, I was at the, I was at a point of real despair with our career. And when the, when the shutdown happened, that was when the, how close to homelessness and poverty we actually, extreme poverty that we actually were became clear to me. And what we leaned into was the fact that over these 20, you know, 20 years up until that point, two years ago, the community that we have found and that has found us and that we have created through traveling with our music, that's what saved us. It was, it was, you know, wealthy friends helping us out who love our music. Yeah. You know, it was doing online concerts and people supporting shockingly generously, you know, and being able to survive it all through it. I mean, it, but it made me understand how precarious our existence was. And and I just, it wasn't, it wasn't okay, you know? And so we, I leaned into what, what, what is something that we can do if, if all performance is removed, we can still write. And there are lots of ways to use our words. There are many ways to use our words. And I have not, I've only begun to scratch the surface of that. And so I really got, both JT and I just got really streaky. We found our manager during the lockdown, um, Carissa Stolting from Left Bank Artists, but she also runs a company called Unmanageable, which is a a 501c3 that really supports artists who are on a mission beyond just a, an album, right. you know, that has a, a kind of a greater harm reduction, social communal element, you know, and I, and so it, it just, it started with meeting Krissa and then it started with strategizing around how do I even want to release this album? Who do I want to work with? And then it was a lot of taking zoom meetings yeah. with different labels and basically being told, well, this is a very worthy project, but I don't know mm. how we, you know, how we would possibly market this, you know, those kinds of conversations, huh. you know, or, oh, well, we already have a black artist, oh, you know, who's sort of rootsy. So I don't know if we could. And then, and then the real reckoning in 2020 started to happen. And then suddenly we were getting all of these calls back and, people interested in talking for the first time in a serious way, you know, about the record. And then it was, you know, I had an intuition to reach out to Brandy Carlisle, whom I didn't know very well at the time we had, you know, we'd run into each other at the Edmonton Folk Fest and done some workshops together. And we'd run into each other on Kayamu and things like that. But we didn't really know one another. But I so deeply admire the way that she is constantly centering community through her career yeah you know as with each success she's giving back and her looking out foundation you know it was when when the minneapolis protests happened and so many black activists were being jailed brandy that after george floyd she did an online concert and she raised a hundred thousand dollars and she just gave it directly to Black Visions Collective, which is a Black trans-led social justice organization in yeah. Minneapolis. Yeah. And I was, I, 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 I admire that so deeply, but it's also what we can, you know, I think about the artists who get huge platforms and it just never occurs to them yeah. 
to invest in community and to be mentors to the next artists coming up. It just doesn't occur to them. Like they've gotten so far yeah. inside their own bubble of yes people, I presume, that it just, they don't even see that they have this sphere of influence that they could use to reduce harm and uplift others, right? They don't even see it. But yeah. Brandy constantly sees and does that. And she seems awesome. I don't, I've never encountered her personally, but I... Oh, she's I, a really special person. Yeah, my wife and I were just marveling at uh, Brandy's recent Saturday Night Live appearance. Uh, oh, incredible, wasn't one it? Of the best, just... One of the best ones I've ever seen. I Honestly, I was like, what the hell? This is so good. And It was so good, and it was so not a gimmick. No. It's just a great band that have been playing together yeah. for 20 years playing their hearts out yeah. up there and seeing their hearts out you, you know? know i have a tab just, i have a i have an internet tab here open where i can contact i'm like i'm gonna after that i put it up and i'm gonna contact brandy's people and see because i would love to yes. talk to brandy i really thought oh, that but, anyway she's wonderful she's to talk see, to. The, the, the hearing and, you talk about it or her rather yeah. and that yeah, sounds great so and that's what I really, I looked at her and I said, well, that's, if I'm going to do a solo career, I want it to be not like the same career as her, but that, I, that notion yeah. of your, it is never just about self-aggrandizing, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. It's about using your voice to reduce harm yeah. in all, and building empathy. Like that's what music is to me. That's what arts work is. Yeah. It is deep deep empathy work there are That's stories of people like dolly parton and rihanna and rihanna in fact who are like using yeah. their platforms and using their resources to help people and quietly often like not really making yes. a huge and deal. prince and prince. prince did it non-stop and yeah. he never once spoke of it because it was against his yeah. religion to do so yeah. and it was only after he died i think it was van jones who was like i need everybody to know this is what he did yeah. like yeah. He, this is what you know no it's it's heartening and, and i can see you being in that lineage of people who, are, who have a generosity of spirit and it comes through in your work and you were talking a few moments ago about how in the midst of the pandemic and the lockdown and the music industry f seeming like it was collapsing you sought refuge or solace in the fact that you could write and yes. i just want to use that as a springboard to talk about like the lyrics here are fantastic on this record in particular but my understanding, I think you alluded to this when we first started talking. You're working on a book of some kind. Is it a memoir? Yes, it's a memoir. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, I'm still in shock. It happened so fast, you know. And again, so this is what you, what you were talking, 2020 for me was building in, an intentional community to be able to release this work and to keep doing harm reduction work around it, basically. So I, when I, talked to Brandy about it. She had an intuition that I should meet the folks at Fantasy Records right. who had put out Tanya Tucker's last record that Brandy produced. And she was really struck by them and their ethos as a company. And she was right. You know, I met Margie Chesky, who is the head of Fantasy Stacks and Vanguard within the Concord Music family. And we just connected on a deep spirit level, you know. And they understood that I was committed obviously to the music but also to forming community and coalition around harm reduction and they are not just in support of that they do that too as a, as a company right. you know right. um and they sign people like valerie june and they don't think it's too much to sign two black artists and put out their records within a few months of each other because all of our voices are unique yeah. 
and needed yeah. and valid, yeah. right? You know, and I, I mean, I, I know, and this sounds like it should be obvious, but I had the, I'm not, there were these conversations where you just think, what year is yeah. it? Is it 1950? You know, would you say that? Would you say, sorry, Neil Young, Bob Dylan exists. So, you know, you've already got a, yeah. a, a singer songwriter guy with a guitar. We don't need another. Can you imagine if that metric was applied to white boys with guitars? It's weird because those I mean, of us in the artistic community, I think, have transcended such thinking. But then when you talk to the business people, they still have the mentality. It's really weird. Because they're in the same milieu. They're in the exact same milieu as us. Who would be like, what the hell year is it? Whereas those folks, if you said it to them, they wouldn't bat. They say it. They say the stuff that feels, you know, archaic. it sounds reasonable to them. Yeah, yeah. It sounds reasonable to them. Yeah. They think it's reasonable because of tokenism and bigotry. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like rampant tokenism and bigotry. Yes, exactly. It's just like, you know. So you, so you, 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 this. Finding this community, you know, and, um, and then it was, then it was all of us get, then it was finding, I have to give huge props to my brilliant publicists because this record, nothing would have happened with it without them, yeah. you know, yeah. without uh, uh, here in the U.S. it's Meg Helso in Canada, it's Ken Beatty at Killbeat and Simon at uh, Six Media in French Canada. And they have just done a miraculous job sort of evangelizing around this record. Yeah. You know, I think about so often, I think, particularly for people outside of the industry, they don't understand that when they hear about a record, it doesn't mean that a record they didn't hear about wasn't worthy, right? It's like there were all of these forces yeah. that had to come together, including a brilliant publicist yes, yes. for you to hear about the record at all, yeah. you know? Yeah. And yeah. So the book, so. the book is. I was just trying to connect what you're saying. Like, I appreciate that you're having oh, yeah. this amazing moment, and then the book is because it's connected. Yeah. So my publicist Meg Helsell, her best, uh, one of her best friends, is a literary agent oh. named Meg Thompson. The Megs, these are the Megs <laughs> I know, and it's like I always get that like kids in the hall yeah, song yeah, the in my Dave, head. The Dave's I know, time, but it's like Megs I know. These are the Megs I know. I know. These are the Megs I know. So pretty good to have Meg Megs. Yeah, absolutely. Helsel, it's really good to have Megs and Dave's. Yeah. Exactly. So, Meg Helsel, who is my American publicist, introduced her her. I guess she, I don't know, I don't think she even actually sent her the record, but her her dear friend Meg Thompson, who's a literary agent um, and runs Thompson Literary Agency, heard Night Flyer on the radio and was really struck by it and was then talking to Meg about it and Meg, my Meg Helsel, and she was like, that's my artist, I, I work with her. And so Meg Thompson said, well, can I meet with her? Has she ever considered writing a memoir? And we had the Sioux meeting and of course I have been that's all all I was doing throughout 2020 was just furiously writing because that was something I could do. Yeah, 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 like you were saying. <laughs> when we when we were locked down. Yeah. And and so I ha- I didn't know necessarily exactly that I was writing a memoir, but that is what I have been doing and the process of meeting Meg Thompson and learning how to write a book proposal, writing my first chapter, submitting it, you know, it was it was such a clarifying empowering galvanizing process you know and and then we had so she sent out the proposal widely on january 3rd and we just got all of these yeses back and took several meetings but the the meeting that i was and the editor that i was the most just felt the most deeply connected to was bryn clark at flatiron books which is an imprint within the mcmillan 
a family of publishers. And Bryn worked actually on Tarana Burke's last book, Unbound, which is a brilliant, brilliant book that I highly recommend to everybody. And Tarana Burke is who founded the Me Too movement. Yeah, yeah. And I was just, you know, and I was listening to her so much during uh, 2020, during these Share the Mic campaigns. She took over Glennon Doyle's um, Instagram. And I was so, and had a conversation with Dr. Yaba Blay, who had taken over Abby Wambach's Instagram. And I remember just devouring these these IG live conversations that black women were having, mm-hmm. you know, throughout 2020 and feeling this sense of community and recognition and coalition in such a strong way. And so now to be at the same, you know, I actually Toronto sent me at this such a, a generous uh, message of welcome oh, nice. to the family and you know, because we're working with the same editor and um, that's lovely and publisher. So I just feel yeah. so grateful to be um, supported in this way as a writer. You know, and to be able yeah. to thereby support my family as well is just an extraordinary privilege that I did not imagine that I would experience in my lifetime. You know, it sounds like an amazing turnaround from 2020 yes. to now. <laughs> yes. And so congratulations on that, and I'm. I'm happy for you. Uh, externally, I suppose, I don't know if this is, uh, trite or, or simplistic, but externally, I could see why someone might see outside child as being a complementary aspect to your memoir. Does that make sense yeah. to you? Yeah. Well, the memoir is really growing out of it. It's like I, right. I there's so much. It, and it, in a way, the memoir will be kind of a companion to outside child, yes, although okay. people won't have yeah. to have heard it necessarily, you know, to, they will, they will live, they will have their distinct lives and identities. Um, but, but definitely it's grown, it's grown out of the explorations of outside child. Yeah. So do you have a sense, uh, do you have, I assume they may have given you a deadline, but do you have a sense of your timeline on the memoir? I am trying to submit a chapter a week to my editor. Um, I'm hoping to, have the the first draft done sometime in uh, late spring, early summer. Okay, and okay. and it will hopefully for a twenty twenty three release. I'm not sure exactly when in twenty twenty three. Okay, well, I don't I don't mean to pry. I'm just curious. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure it's on your mind a lot. I got if I had a book to write, it would be all I was thinking about. That's you know, all I, I think about. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm deep in it. I'm just I'm almost done with my next chapter that I'm going to submit later today. Oh, nice. Uh, Okay, well, I want to let you get back to your work, but um, beyond the book, uh, you obviously have just released, relatively recently, released this Yeah, six uh, months ago. I can't believe it's only six months. There are Grammy nominations. So much has changed. So much has changed. But the the Grammys, I know you were a bit outspoken on Twitter about the Grammy nominations, and I feel like the ceremony has been... uh, what, what, What happens with that nomination? I feel like the ceremony was sort of permanently... Postponed, if that's such no, a thing. Is that true? No, they just they just oh. announced it's going to be April third in Las Vegas. <laughs> oh, okay. So that's a whole. That's a whole. Yeah. Um. What when you say outspoken? How so? I thought I read a tweet. There was a thread, and I don't know if you were involved in it actually, but I thought you were invoked that there was some criticism about the nomination process. Do you have any take on the Grammys? They've been, faced a lot of scrutiny over the last few years. My take is that I think they are seriously engaged in self-examination and course correction. Okay. And okay. I really appreciate that. And I'm 
so new, you know, this is my first go around. I've never been nominated before. So I'm just really starting to, I I started getting really interested um, in learning about the Recording Academy in 2018 when Tina Chen led the kind of DEI inquiry and had recommendations. And I thought, well, that's really proactive that they're doing that. And I know that there, you know, there's been, it's been a complicated uh, rocky last couple yeah. of years for them, obviously, and then with the with the world too. But I think it's a really critical time for the yeah. Recording Academy, and I feel very, in you know, I've become a member, and I'm really interested in being part of that DEI course correction work. I'm doing that actually now. I for the first time, I threw my hat in the ring. Uh, for a board, you know, uh, I got elected onto the board of the Americana Music Association. And I subsequently started working with uh, a diversity, equity and inclusion committee within that. And it's and we've it's it's been such just a healing process to be a part of. And we're just you know, we're just at the beginnings. There's a long way to go. But I'm really proud of our of our all Americana community for the work that we're actively engaged in. And especially when I look at the way that mainstream country music is, is having a real problem reckoning with its own biases and exclusionary practices and, you know, male centered and and white supremacist practices. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. They're, they're having a lot of trouble reckoning with it. And I'm really proud of the, the kind of, greater Americana and and folk communities for doing that work uh, with real courage and vigor. And I think that the Recording Academy is trying to do the same. I saw it as a really great sign when there's there's sort of like a there there seems to be like a brain trust forming of saying we can't just have one person with whatever their biases are in charge of everything. Right. And I think they did away with the secret committees this year. And that was a, a new thing. And I know that people have have different feelings about that. Some people felt that those committees actually helped prevent sort of major labels from having too much sway. And other people felt that it was, you know, the, the lack of transparency was a problem. You know, the recording Academy right now is at 11,000 members and Mm. Each member can put forward two other artists that they think should join. And I love thinking about how quickly we things can actually change if we get engaged, yeah. you know, as a community. And if we each take responsibility as an artist and a member of a community, what kind of community do we want to have? Yeah. Do we want to have a community that is that reflects the full spectrum of amazing art out there so that it's relevant and a true peer review because I love the notion of a peer like science is peer reviewed I love the notion of of an art of an artistic peer review essentially yeah. of an artistic yeah. coalition because it's not about to me the Grammys isn't about competition at all it's about community yeah. like on the surface it's oh only one person can win this symbolic award but to me what's really exciting are the nominations yeah. and so to be nominated meant something to me and it means something to me it is i do take it as a great honor because for all of the no organization is is without flaw yeah. and obviously yeah. the grammys has been struggling yeah. but i really encourage artists to get in there and and be the change you know how how do we how does anything change if we don't step up and 
be the change we want to see. Right. I mean, I really appreciate and, your articulation of this and, and also for clarifying <laughs> what I thought maybe was conveyed. That's great. And I think you're yeah. absolutely correct. And, uh, so, and I also just wish you the best of luck with that. It's a, it is a huge honor. It could be a life changing thing. It is, honor. it is probably already a life changing thing. It's honestly, it's yeah. already life changing. Yeah. It's yeah. already life changing. And it's reflected. And this is the other thing that I, I feel the need to just say something about. There's been a lot of high profile artists that I respect and admire their careers who walked through that magic door many years ago, right? Of, of, being nominated, of being honored, of being who are now sort of saying things like it's all corrupt, burn it all down. I'm not. Right? I'm, not I'm not gonna. gonna I'm not gonna submit my I'm records not gonna name anymore. Names. But but they they've said <laughs> literally, I'm no longer gonna submit my records yeah. for, for consideration because yeah. it's they think yeah. it's so flawed, and yeah. and they're high profile artists. And I mean the likes high profile artists. The likes of Jay Z have said this. The weekend recently, but sorry, go go yeah. go ahead. Yeah. yeah, Drake as well. Yeah. and and I would. I guess what I would, I mean, not that I think my words are going to reach them, but I would ask them to really think back to remember what it was like when they were outside of the magic circle and they're struggling as artists and that getting nominated is a stamp of validity as an artist, whether it should be or not, we could, we could argue about hierarchical notions of value and, and, you know, if if we're going to do that, we, we have to start taking apart our entire <laughs> everything about our systems, yeah. right? So yeah. w- w- I am someone who still believes that we can create change within the systems that exist and better them and transform them thereby. I still believe that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's naive. But I see the changes that are already happening in just within the Americana Music Association and the Americana Music Community. Yeah. And how significant that is. And that is, and it is significant. It's Valerie June and Yola staying at the top of the charts for months on end when they used to not play women, let alone black women, right? Like that's real change that's, that, that reflects in tour ticket sales, that reflects in, uh, you know, album sales, that reflects in that, that's a big deal, right? And, um, Getting nominated for a Grammy, what I will say for three Grammys in this case, already the fees that my booking agent is able to get have gone up. Yeah, yeah. Like no. that translates to me being able to support my child. Yes. It is re- It is a tangible difference yeah. from when I wasn't nominated or recognized by the Academy and now when I am. Yeah. And so what I'm going to, I guess what I want to say is, to those artists who are industries unto themselves now, you know, like Drake is an industry. He, he's, they were, how, you know, what percentage of Toronto tourism is yes. Drake related, yep. you know, and, and that's an incredible, amazing achievement. But there was a time when that nomination or that win was transformative for him yes, too yes. as an artist, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I, I guess what I would say is, I, I hope that these artists who be, who are industries unto themselves can remember what it was like to be struggling yeah. and to be outside of these magic circles. And rather than saying, we're going to shut that door so no other artist can ever come through. You know, it's like, it's kind of like you're in the magic room eating the chocolate fondue and you're going, actually, it's really messed up in here. Like they're not, I, I got less fondue than that other guy. Yeah. So you don't want to come in here at all. You don't want to come in here at all. It's just... 
there's there's a there's there's a not really remembering or seeing the full picture of it. There's a privilege, right, to that sort of like blow it all up. Who cares? They don't need it anyway. You know, well, the weekend I, doesn't need the Grammys. I, I hope people hear you on this because you know. where you're coming from, the perspective is so valid and necessary because what you've transcended in your life and survived in your life, I think some people can wallow in the despondency of that experience. And you're an example of someone whose hope, I think, is really bolstered by what you've overcome. And so you see things yeah, from a perspective definitely. of like, you think that's bad? You know, like think of what <laughs> it could be a lot think worse. Think of what people have survived, and you know, yes, you're you're belly aching about not getting a Grammy nomination, so you're taking your ball and going home. Like I, I do, but I well, this is and this, and I don't. I never want to shame anybody, but I do think someone like The Weekend is so power and Drake. Yeah. You know, the artists like uh, who have who have become industries unto themselves have such a massive sphere of influence, and I guess that's all I would say is. I, I would encourage artists and every, and it doesn't matter where you are. I had a sphere of influence when it was 20 people coming to my house concert. That was my sphere yeah, of influence, yeah, right? Yeah. And now it's growing. Yeah. And that was just as val. I don't, I don't, I don't feel ashamed of when I was sleeping on floors yeah. in order to make the tour happen and pay my band. I don't feel ashamed of any of that. I'm proud of it. I'm proud of the way we created a niche for ourselves when nobody wanted to hear it. What I was, you know, when 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 the mainstream world couldn't hear my writing and didn't want yeah, to, you yeah. know, and that's okay. There were always people that did want to hear it, and that was my sphere of influence, yeah, yeah. right? And it's growing now because, for whatever reason, these doors are opening yeah. now, you know. And the Grammy nominations are part of it. That is, those are three big doors that just opened for me as an artist, and I'm and I'm still experiencing the benefits of that, you know? Well, great. And I would just encourage <laughs> artists with even bigger platforms to think about, I have this sphere of influence. What can I do with this to give back to my community? Yeah. What can I do with it to help other artists who are coming up and who are facing some of the same systemic barriers that I faced, yeah. right? Yeah. How can I change it? Yeah. And I just think about if The Weeknd and Drake got involved and leaned into that and got on the board of the Grammys and got on, they could do all that stuff. Yeah. You know, they could make change. Yeah. They could be part of changing it for the better to make it work better for other, you know, intersectional artists coming up. Well, life can be you long. Know? And I think as uh, they're still trying to represent themselves as very young artists. So as they get older and and, yeah. and settle into their mature years, maybe they'll they'll do that more. And I know, yeah. I'm sure they're doing some of what you're talking about in the background already. Uh, I'm sure they are. Yeah. I'm sure they yeah. are. I know yeah. they rep Toronto sure they pretty... And again, pretty no, no shade. No, no, it's not shade. No shade. Yeah. No shade. It's just yeah. pointing out some facts. Where I was yeah. going to go with the fact that you've got the book that you need to work on today. So we're going to let you go soon. But secondly, <laughs> uh, have you pondered songs beyond these ones are yes. you writing are you recording are you in that zone yes i'm writing i'm not recording yet um but i think in in may i'll probably start doing some demoing for the next record and i am writing and I'm, it's been really freeing to kind of have the the world of outside child living on that album and now living in this book as well, like yeah. where I can continue to kind of excavate and, 
go deeper there, but to be freed musically, to not have to be in that world anymore musically, <laughs> yeah, yeah, has yeah. actually been really joyful. So, nice. um, yeah, I'm ex- I'm really excited about the next record for sure. Excellent. So, Allison, if people want to learn more about you, this record, Outside Child, anything else you want them to know, uh, can they follow you? Where would you like them to go? Yeah, yeah. I guess I would say I'm most active on Instagram and Twitter. Um, but my website, you know, is a great place, like a kind of everything is there. The links to all the various socials are there. And that's just Allison Russell music.com. Okay. Um, yeah. And so I'm, 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 You're I'm, everywhere. you know, on all the usual places <laughs> that I would say that I'm most, I interact the most on Instagram and Twitter. So I get that a lot. People are mostly doing stuff on those two things. So, okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Now, if we can go out on a song, from Outside Child. I wonder if you can choose one and maybe just tell us why it came to mind. I think Poison Arrow because for me that's in a way the one of the most hopeful songs on the record and it's really about like reclaiming my city of Montreal because there were a lot of years where I was almost afraid to go back because it, you know, just the the memories were painful and and for a long time my my abuser was still there. He lives in St. Catharines now. So that was sort of, that song came out of realizing, going back with my partner and our daughter, that like I, I could feel the, the joy of my city again. And I felt just at home and I felt the distance of how far I'd come from when I was, you know, a scared runaway kid. Right. And the And the kind of, it's it's bittersweet but it's also i don't know i just felt a gratitude and the the it's it's in both french and english yeah. um yeah. which is sort of how my memory works and it's just that notion of sometimes that little drop of poison can become medicine yeah. you know and yeah. make you stronger well that was wonderfully put before we get to it are you i i take it you're bilingual are you i was completely bilingual as a kid i would say that i am struggling to keep my French okay. because I've been living in English uh, places, but I am still, I can still, you know, I'm definitely still bilingual, but my French is not, is no longer as good as my English. <laughs> my kids, my kids say. are in French immersion. So I just want to know what they're in for. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I went to all French immersion too. Yeah. It's, I, I think it's wonderful. And it's, it's, you, you, you never lose out by learning another language. It is always a benefit. And it's helped me so much when I travel, you know, in other romantic uh, language countries like Italy or Spain, anywhere, you know, I can understand so much. There's similarities between the yeah. languages. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, I won the French award in grade eight, but it's gone downhill since then. Ah, that's so great. I need it back. I, I know. I'm trying to well, get Well, you can relearn with your kids. I'm trying. And but practice with them. They're even resisting their own French. It's interesting. They're at that age. But anyway, I appreciate uh, uh, this conversation and I appreciate the song pick. We're going to play Poison Arrow from the Breakthrough and Grammy nominated album, uh, Outside Child. Allison, this was really, really a pleasure for me and uh, you're a very inspiring person. I hope you enjoyed it and I wish you the best of luck in the future. Thank you so much, Vish. It's lovely talking to you.
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Very, very special thanks again to Allison Russell for appearing on this, the 668th episode of Creative Control. It was very nice to reconnect with Allison after all this time. And uh, yeah, again, thank you so much, Allison, for being on this episode of Creative Control. Creative Control is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about and you're looking for it, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Vish Creative, or you can follow me directly on Twitter and on Instagram at Vishkana. You can also visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this podcast. $6 or more a month grants you access to exclusive content. And if you're interested in receiving a Creative Control t-shirt, just message me on Patreon once you've made your donation and I'll get you one while supplies last. Thanks again to the fine Alberta record retailer Blackbird Music, which you can learn more about and place special orders uh, at via their website, blackbird.ca. And also to Pizza Trocadero, the bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, for their in-kind support for this show. If you happen to be in either of those cities, check out those businesses. They're great. Tell them I sent you. See what they, they'll just look at you like, Who? Uh, maybe they won't. I don't know. I don't know. who. I, I haven't been there in so long. Maybe they remember me. I have no idea. Thanks, as always, to Jim Guthrie for letting me use some music of his on the show. You can learn more about uh, Jim at uh, jimguthrie.org. Uh, Jim lives in Ontario as well. So if you see Jim, you know, mention my name. See what he says. He'll probably act like he doesn't know me, but he does. We're friends. He might say we're not, but we are. He knows me. And finally, thank you for listening to this episode of uh, this show with uh, the wonderful and inspiring Allison Russell. I was very moved by this conversation, and uh, her record, Outside Child, is wonderful. So I hope you will uh, check out Allison's stuff if you're unfamiliar. And if you are here because of Allison, I hope you will consider subscribing to this podcast and following it and telling your friends about it, and maybe they'll do the same thing and spread the word about it. That would be cool if you can do it, but if you can't and don't want to, that's fine too. You can do whatever you want. You're your own person. Anyway, I'll talk to you very soon. Thanks again. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.